0: Forever,
1: dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us.
0: Hey. Yeah. Hello, I'm Allison Baskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and my internet never works
2: i'm gabby dunn i'm a writer bicon bisexual icon wink and uh mine does i guess although allison
0: do you have Verizon for my phone or for my internet for your phone yeah and i got a lot of thoughts about it it did
2: it it went down yesterday
0: oh i didn't have that but i actually recently switched from at&t to verizon and it was a goddamn nightmare
2: so yesterday in some parts of L.A. and then the day before, too, in the afternoon, you couldn't make calls. There were no co- incoming or outgoing calls. It's, and let me tell you something. When that happens, it's very interesting because you go, oh, my God, how easy is it for a company to just cut off communication completely? <gasps> it was scary because you're like, oh, my God, like we are at the mercy. The ability to communicate is at the mercy of corporations. Oh, no, I don't like to think about that. If it all went down, what, that, what would happen?
0: I don't know. Scary. Don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. Change the subject. Yeah, this, I is, mean- this is just between us, a variety <laughs> show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty about everything except corporations' ability <laughs> to take away our communication. Well, it scared me because I
2: was like, oh, my God, like the ability to gather, the ability to speak to each other, the ability to like fight back on all these things is so dependent now on the Internet and on Mm -hmm. the ability. Like I was like, oh, my God, I can't call my parents, which honestly, them
0: not being able to call me kind of a gift. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad. I owe them a call. (laughs) Well, I'd like to not think about that. And I'm going to choose to avoid it completely, even though that's not the healthy approach. But hey, sometimes that's all you got. So we've got a great episode for everyone today. We're going to be talking
2: to Celeste Headley all about sexism and a bunch of other stuff, actually. Later, we'll discuss student loans, why they should be forgiven and the controversy around it. But first, we have got
0: to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question, international question, international question. Anonymous USA. Anonymous for the purposes of this pod is very interesting. Well, yeah, they have an identity in real life. They just don't want us to reveal it on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Dear Allison and Gabby, thank you so much for this podcast. It's been so helpful to hear your perspectives on life and mental health topics and has helped me to have a more balanced approach to my life. And Allison, I've had my local library pre-order your book. Can't wait to read it. Oh, that's lovely. I know. TLDR, how can I be sure of my decisions when my perspective on them changes drastically every few months? Oh, you are speaking my language. (laughs) I'm a 25-year-old woman in a -a four-and-a-half-year relationship with my boyfriend, 25 and male. In many ways, we have a wonderful life together. He's my best friend, and we love each other a lot. We also live together, and cohabitating works really well for us. It is by far the best living situation I've ever had. However, our relationship feels very platonic and has for several years. I have a much higher sex drive than he does, which used to cause a lot of conflict. But now I'm pretty resigned to our sex-maybe-once-a-month routine. He has turned me down so many times that I've stopped initiating and have largely stopped seeing him as a sexual option, so much so that when he does initiate, I'm not really into it. This is the one admittedly big flaw in the otherwise great relationship. I go back and forth on breaking up with him, and this is really the crux of the issue. When I'm in a phase where I think we should break up, I feel pretty certain about it. I am currently in one of those phases, which I'm sure is affecting the way I write this email. But then I sit with my emotions for a couple weeks, and I inevitably pass out of that phase and into one where I see all the positives in our relationship. I no longer want to break up, and I feel really relieved that I didn't do it. When I'm in the one phase or the other, it is difficult for me to connect with the emotions, logic, reasons that go along with the other, i.e. when I'm thinking about ending it, I see only the negatives, and my reasons for staying seem entirely fear-based and short-sighted. Mm. I've been cycling between these phases seriously for maybe a year slash year and a half. The phases in which I feel good about the relationship last significantly longer on average than the ones where I feel negatively. But then again, since I keep returning to negative feelings, maybe that means they'll never go away. How do I make a decision and feel confident in it when my perspective on my situation flip-flops so drastically and reliably? I feel like I can't identify my true feelings on the topic and that I can't trust my emotions or in their narrative since it never settles in either camp permanently. I would love your input on this. Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work.
2: Here's my question, Allison. Do you think that if you're with someone and you've ever thought of breaking up, the relationship is doomed? Not at all. Yeah, I feel <coughs> like I feel like I've thought about breaking up with almost everyone I've been with in a way that like then passes or like for me, like it really depends on if that feeling lasts long enough that I almost can't keep it in. Like the times that I've broken up with someone have been times where I've had that feeling, but I, I feel like a overwhelming need to vote, to vocalize it. And also sometimes with people that I'm dating, like there's been times where I've been like, "Should we break up?" Like it's not like a one-sided decision. Like it's something where you you talk to the person and maybe things change or maybe it passes, or you know, I've and I don't and it hurts my feelings when someone does it to me, and maybe it hurts their feelings when I, you know, do it to them. but oftentimes I've had a lot of success being like, "How do you think this is going? like do you think do you think we should stay together?" And then like having an actual conversation about it.
0: Have you and Mal ever had that conversation? Yeah. And I, and
2: I don't think that has any, I don't think that says anything about our relationship. I don't think that says anything about our desire to be together. I don't think that says anything about how much we love each other. Um. I think we go through phases where we're more into each other than other phases. And Mal, you know, will sometimes be like, I felt annoyed with you today. Should we break up? And I'm like, do you want to break up? And they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, then you felt annoyed with me today. I get it. Like, what's nice is, is being able to have a discussion about it without being like, this is what's happening right now. And when I say break up, it's kind of like this nebulous thing of like, if we're mad at each other, I'm like, it's over. Or if I, you know, feel bored or something. But like, I generally have the opinion that those feelings ex- exist and then pass. And Mal gets really worried about it. And I'll be, they'll be like, I have this feeling today. And I'll be like, what well, do you think it'll pass?
0: And they're like, yeah, definitely. And I'm like, okay. Like, I feel like you don't want to be together all the time. Yeah, I think it's two things. One is like normalizing that sometimes we do feel differently about our partners. And sometimes mm-hmm. we do question the relationship. But I also think in this example, there is a pretty clear area of your relationship that is not working for you. And so I think you're sort of in this approach of like, well, I either have to take this relationship as it is right now, or I have Mm -hmm. to leave the relationship. But there Mm -hmm. is a third option, which is addressing your sexual relationship with your partner. And like seeing if you can get that to a place that is healthier and more fulfilling for you. And then it's not like abandoning this person. It's creating a new relationship with them that is better for everybody.
2: Absolutely. And I think too, like you're thinking of these things as something you are going through by yourself. Oftentimes when I've talked to people, I've been like, are you happy? And like, I'm not taking into account that this other person is having experiences too. That maybe there's something that we can talk about and discuss and work through. um, And it doesn't have to be my decision one way or the other. And like, like you said, like, not even if your problem, like in general, let's say for this listener, it's sex drives. But in general, if you and your partner, if something is, is bumping for you, it's maybe bumping for them, too.
0: And like just because we've gone into a pattern with our partner doesn't mean that we can't break that pattern. We can't mm-hmm. sh- shake things up. We can't like you know you're constantly sort of like reforming relationships and redefining relationships and and so of course if that's not happening and you feel stuck and you feel stagnant and the way that it is isn't working for you in the first place then that is like in a way on you. But I I would really give yourself the opportunity to work on this area of your relationship. And I think together working together. Together, Yeah. But I think that the process of working on it will reveal a lot about the relationship and whether or not you want to stay right. Because if you go to your partner and you say, hey, I think that our sex life isn't really working and I feel more platonic towards you. And I feel like we've maybe lost this intimate sexual connection with each other, maybe even romantic connection with each other. I would really like to put in the work for us to re, ignite that and for that to be in a bigger part of our relationship moving forward. And if they say no way, (laughs) right, (laughs) then that's tricky, right? Because then the only relationship that you have is the one you're in. And then it is a really hard thing of like, is this enough for me, but give them the opportunity to work with you and to create a new relationship that might work even better, you know, and it's probably going to be multiple conversations. It is a really touchy topic to bring up with somebody. But I think that you owe it to this partner. I think you owe it to yourself. I think it, oh, you owe it to the years that you've spent together and primarily happy to not just accept the status quo and instead really put in the work to improve your relationship.
2: Yeah, and Mal and I have been together about three years and Mal is very good at being like, we need to have romance. Like we live together. They're my best friend. Like things can get really we're just hanging out and we're having a good time and like we hang out all the time. And Mal is the one who really pushes for like, we should go out to dinner or we should, we should do a fun day where we like go around and thrift thrift shop together and get like fun, you know, coffee and have like a date. And I, I can sometimes get into the slump of like, we're, we're best friends. Like everything's fine. And I think, like, it's been really nice that Mal pushes for romance. Mal asked me to write them a love letter. I did it. And it, like, made things really great. Or they'll leave me little notes and stuff. Or, But, like, they they really find it very important to keep the relationship romantic because their concern is what if we just become friends and we're stuck together because we have this dog in this house and, you know— there's a way in which you can bring that up and do that. And Mal brings that up to me a lot that they want more romance. And I'm like, okay. And you have to talk it out. And and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily a naturally romantic person. So, you know, it has to, it has to be talked about very explicitly. And I think there's a world in which, you know, Mal might feel like, I want someone more romantic. I'm going to break up with Gabby. And then like, we we talk about it and work on it together
0: yeah and and i think that like we we talk so much relationships or work, you know, you have to put work into your relationship. But like, it's kind of like, what does that mean? Like, it mm-hmm. means bringing this up. It means having these uncomfortable conversations. It means scheduling date nights, scheduling maybe even times to have sex, like scheduling mm-hmm. some stuff just so it becomes a part of your routine. And it, it's not something that feels so foreign to you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like right now, there's a very binary. Do I leave or do I stay? but I'm asking you to explore that third option of do I change the relationship?
2: Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, sometimes it hurts. Definitely when, when uh, Mal's been like, uh, should we break up? Like, it, it hurts my feelings. And my first thing is defensiveness to be like, you know, I don't want to be the person that's hurt. But I try very hard to be like, this is just a conversation. And, you know, in that conversation, you have to
0: assure them, I'm not leaving right now. Right. I'm having this conversation in the first place because I don't want to leave. Because I love you and I don't want to leave. I'm going to put myself through something that's inherently uncomfortable because that's how much I care about you and that's how much skin I have in this game. Definitely. So I hope that that helps keep us updated. And if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly
2: esteemed guest, Celeste Headley. Stay tuned.
0: Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Celeste
2: Headley, a journalist, public radio host, and best-selling author. She wrote an essay from Scribd titled, You're Cute and You're Mad, Simple Steps for Confronting Sexism, which is a great title. Hello,
0: Celeste. Hello. Thank you. I came up with that title myself. Oh, it's I so love good. It. <laughs> so, you have done so many things over your career, but what made you want to tackle this subject? Huh. I, you know, I just finished writing a book
1: about how to talk about racism. And, you know, with the intersectionality of racism and all of the bad, bad takes that we're hearing about gender identity, it was time to not give my theories on all of those things. Other people have done that much better than I could, but just to say, here's how to have that conversation. Um, here's how to talk about it. Because frankly, I think early on in the, in the ebook, I talk about how long it's going to take more than a century before we reach gender parity. And I just want people to think, you know, the, what we're doing right now of like talking only to the people who g- agree with us and have basically the same ideas and totally shunning those who think differently on both sides do this. It, it may make us feel good, but it's not getting us anywhere. And so we we have to try something different. Like it or not, we have to try something different. So yeah, that's why I wanted to write it.
2: The idea is to talk, is to, is to have a guideline for how to talk to other people people that might not
1: necessarily immediately understand sexism? It, it, not just that. There's a, a couple. Yes, that's part of it. Yes, and. One of the main things I wanted to do was encourage people to intervene, especially men. You know, we most people at this point understand what a microaggression is. I don't think people realize how damaging microaggressions are. And I really want, that's what I wanted to focus this book on, are these, what what's known as friendly sexism or casual sexism, these little tiny things of, Oh, let me get the door for you, hun. Oh God, your handwriting is so great you know why don't you take the notes during every meeting and teach people step by step how to intervene if it's a microaggression you can do a micro intervention it doesn't have to be a ted talk it doesn't have to be some deep conversation it can just be a very quick 30 second intervention and that is way more powerful than you think so that was one of the other purposes was to empower people by saying not just here's why you should do it but let me give you the tools and walk you through it, so you you don't feel like I don't know how to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you develop these interventions, and how do you know that they work? Every single one of them is developed
1: based on science, <laughs> like literally going back to the behavioral science and um, organizational science, and figuring out what has what do we have actual evidence that works? Because you know. You probably already know, uh, sexual harassment training not only does not work at all, the standard sexual harassment training, but there's really good evidence that it backfires. That after sexual harassment training, the chances of discriminatory behavior actually increase. Why? Well, there's a few reasons for that. We, We don't entirely understand all of the causations. But part of it is, I'll give it to you in racism terms, because we have some really good research on this. What's known as the Obama effect, for example. If you give a white person the chance to say, I voted for Obama or say, support Obama, they are more likely to engage in discriminatory behavior. After that, which essentially is because they're like, I voted for Obama. I can't possibly be racist. Therefore, every decision that I make is fair and justified and not caused by unconscious bias. It's the same thing in sexist training. There's a few things going on. A, you've taken sexist training, that means everything that you do is not sexist. It's totally fair and rational. But also, especially men, when they go to these sexual harassment trainings and you say, Hey, here's Brad. Brad grabs women's butts. Brad is bad, right? Right. And the guy who's sitting there is like, well, I don't grab people's butts. I'm not as bad as Brad. I'm not a sexist. Right. So there's a few things going on, but it, it does make people think that they're kind of inoculated from accusations of sexist behavior.
0: Wow. And why is it so deeply uncomfortable for people to recognize that they're sexist or racist?
1: Okay. so part of the reason for that is because we have. Our society has made racism or racist the worst thing you can say about a person. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand why i I get it, and i I support the concepts behind it, But at the same time, it hasn't worked. We thought that making racism so awful would shame people into not being racist anymore. There's two reasons that doesn't work. Number one, shame is a terrible motivator. And number two, the most common form of racism, and this goes for sexism too, that anybody will will either engage in or encounter is a result of implicit bias, unconscious bias, meaning they don't think they're racist or sexist. They don't realize it. We don't realize it. That includes us. So telling someone, don't be racist, racist is bad, only leads to, of course, racism is bad. I'm not racist though. Mm -hmm. So making racist the worst thing possible has not, has not helped (laughs) at all. Yeah. Or even
2: saying like the thing you just did is
1: sexist, but not being like you are a sexist. Exactly. And you know, this is a concept we can all understand. I mean, you know, one of the things, one of the basics of psychology is to stop identifying your emotions as personality traits, right? Like you feel angry, that doesn't make you an angry person. So you have to learn that these things are momentary. They're going to pass. And it's kind of the same. Somebody can be absolutely an advocate for women on, on one hand and then do some sexist crap with the other hand and not even recognize the disconnect. Mm-hmm. So sayings, don't be sexist,
2: doesn't help. Yeah. You're talking about benevolent sexism. And I just wanted to get a definition for that. And also, I think like with the whole let me get the door for you, hun. Like mm. if someone's like, what's wrong with that? Or why is it bad to call someone sweetheart? Honestly, for me, a lot of times I'll go, do you call the ma- your male colleagues, honey? That, And they're like, no, that would be gay. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> so can you explain benevolent sexism? And can you explain like, if someone's like gets their hackles up and is like,
1: that's not bad. It's like, why that's bad? Yes. Okay. So and I'm going to try to get everything. And if I miss something <laughs> of what you just said. <laughs> Just let me know. Benevolent sexism is sexism that is that comes in the frame of a compliment, or it is built off the ideas that there are personality traits that are related to gender, and therefore when someone is conforming with our traditional ideas of gender, that's something that you should reinforce or reward. Sadly, that relates to chivalry. Mm-hmm. Um, chivalry needs to die an ugly death. So if you go back to the or- origins of the Chivalric Code, y- you will see that there's no mention of women at all in the Chivalric Code. It says that a good knight has to protect the weak. Ah! Yeah, that's where chivalry comes from. <laughs> that's that whole thing of pulling your chair out or opening the door only for women. Like, I'm all for opening the door for everybody. Right
0: For absolutely everyone.
1: But when it comes to all that chivalry, it's because they're supposed to protect the weak. I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's enough of that. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, thank you. But this is part of benevolent sexism. And frankly, benevolent sexism can work. If you are a woman who believes, has uh, your unconscious bias, leans toward sexism... And that's almost all of us. (laughs) That's almost all of us, including me. Mm -hmm. If you are married to a a partner, man, well, in this case, it's probably going to be a man, who is also behaves in a benevolently sexist way, defers to you, treats you like you're more sensitive. Your well-being can be higher than the average female. So it can work for you. Sadly, you will not have autonomy. You will not be empowered. You will not have all those things that I associate with a good life, but it can raise your well-being to be protected and catered to and, you know, not have to make the tough decisions.
2: And feminism is being like, good for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: If Love that's that your you. idea
2: of femininity. Love it. Get it. But they have to respect us back.
1: Correct. 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 Here we are. That's where it falls (laughs) down, right? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: And can we talk about how we all have so much implicit bias and how it's impossible to, like, exist in our society and not have that as our baseline?
1: Yeah, you know, that was one of the first things I did when I first started researching for this particular book was go to the implicit association test that are offered online and take the two that are related to gender only to find out that I am super sexist um, (laughs) and have what they identified as a strong association for women and family with family and home and men with career and ambition. Yeah. Wow. So... If even I, who have been a single mother for most of my adult life and have been fighting fucking, pardon my French, gender norms and have been punished over and over and over in some cases that made headlines in the New York Times for my gender, if even that lives in me, It's in all of us. Like, we all grew up watching those sitcoms. We all watched, you know, Will Smith walk on stage to slap somebody because he's protecting his wife from mean words, right? Then that's, and we watched everybody else defend that as though a woman needs protection. A a strong, independent woman like Jada Pinkett Smith needs to be protected from mean words. I'm sorry, no thank you. So, of course, this is in all of us. Right? Mm. That's not chivalry. That's protecting the weak. Mm. And this is it's the air we breathe. You know, when it comes to racism, it's been described as smog, right? That it's it's just all around us and we all breathe it in. And it's the same with sexism. It is everywhere. They they
2: intersect with everything. Yes. You're not immune.
0: Do you think the right approach is sort of like giving yourself compassion that you have these biases because like, of course you do, but then needing to put in the work to break them?
1: I am so glad that you brought up self-compassion. I write a newsletter every week and I just wrote one recently on self-compassion because self-compassion is better at creating uh, resilience than self-esteem. Self-esteem it's fine, whatever, you can have it or not. But self-compassion, which involves understanding that you've made a mistake, but all kinds of people have made that specific mistake and make lots of mistakes is much more likely to get you to own up to the mistake. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when you have that self-compassion, you don't lie about it. You're just like, "Mm, it happened. I did that and I can get past this. And, you know, in I'm a, a Buddhist, and when you are studying having compassion for the world, any Buddhist teacher will tell you that compassion has to begin with yourself. You cannot have compassion to the, for the world until you learn how to have that compassion for yourself. So, yes, absolutely. The first step to dealing with racism in any, or sexism or any-ism, ageism, genderism, any of it, Is learning that you yourself are biased in some way and it can happen. That doesn't make you a horrible person, right? I mean, one of the examples I give in the book is you know, what if we found out that Oscar Schindler was a sexist? Mm -hmm. Does that somehow make him a terrible person that erases all the good stuff he did? Or can we say, you know what, people are complicated mm-hmm. and I'm complicated and I say mean stuff to the people I love sometimes and I, I do selfish things sometimes and that doesn't vacate my life of value. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all about compassion.
0: Yeah. And that like there is a level of of then that you recognize that you're accountable for it and then trying to do that work to change the way that you yes. think. yes <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Obviously, compassion doesn't mean I'm going to continue to be a horrible sexist jerk and <laughs> and that's going to be okay. No, it means that you move on to to change it. And also, this calculus does not apply to a public figure. They have a higher level of responsibility because they have literally asked to be given a higher level of responsibility. So sexism as some sexist phrase that you know your coworker says is not the same as if a senator says it right well it
2: depends on who has power yeah definitely
0: could we do like a little role play where you show us like how you would intervene like have a micro in- intervention with somebody sure before we do that so that uh, um the people can really understand what i'm doing this is the star
1: system that i'm going to use which is stop tell, assist, restore. It literally takes like 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to stop you from speaking, whatever it is that you're saying. I'm going to tell you I don't agree with that or that is upsetting to me personally. Uh, I'm going to assist you to understand by explaining to you why I don't agree with it. And then I'm going to restore, which is restore your humanity. So go ahead, say the sexist thing.
0: Okay. Gabby, you're looking mighty fine today. Okay. It upsets
1: me to hear you just commenting on Gabby's appearance. When you do that, you're leaning into a stereotype, that, which in the end can really damage them. I'm sure you didn't mean it that way. That I just wanted to
0: point it out. Oh. So is it including that part of like, I'm sure you didn't mean it that way? Does that like that's help? That's restoring them. Yeah, That's restoring their
1: humanity and giving them that you're basically giving them the benefit of the doubt. And the reason that that's the most important step, almost. I mean, the most important step really is to do it, to stop it. Mm-hmm. And to always step in and never let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the second most important step is to not leave them feeling like as though they've been attacked or they have to defend mm-hmm. their own, personhood, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to restore them, um, which will make them more open to those kind of interventions in the future. And it will frame the way they think about that incident. It turns it from their framing being fully negative into something that would be like, huh, interesting. Let me think about that. Maybe I could have said that differently.
0: Is your advice to do it in the moment, to do it in the middle of the meeting instead of afterwards having that private conversation? No, always in the moment. If they're saying that
1: thing publicly, then the public needs to hear that it is not okay. When you Mm. don't say anything, you're creating a norm. Mm -hmm. You're creating a norm in which either it's considered too scandalous to talk about or too shameful to talk about in front of everyone, or you're saying, this is okay. Mm. And this is especially important if you're intervening on somebody else's behalf. Yeah. Because you need them to see that you noticed it's not okay. You need yeah. everyone to see that it's not okay. And you need everyone to see this transaction go in a healthy way. You need to, they need to see you correcting them. And then that person accepting it and moving on. Two things is, does it work best
2: if you are also part of that group? Or does it work best if you are not part of that group? And yes. also what if, like if if my, my partner is also trans and if we're at, the Cheesecake Factory, which is a thing that happened. And the waiter was like, Uh, do you ladies want anything? Then the waiter went away. Then I said to my partner, Do you want me to say something? And they were like, No, it's fine. So it 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 depends. Like sometimes I feel like I've had situations where I'm like, Can I say something? And the person I'm with is like, no. I know. It's hard because I want to say something so bad. <laughs> so ask yourself why um, they don't want you to say something. They feel awkward. hmm Yeah. What are they afraid of? Inconveniencing the person.
1: Okay. Making the other person feel bad. Right. So that's the beauty of the star system is that A, it's designed to not make that person feel bad. Mm-hmm. B, it's designed to be extremely quick. hmm So... If you're concerned about it, you can always say, lean over and say, I got this. Is that OK? Mm-hmm. But you also need to build that trust by demonstrating this is not going to become a big, embarrassing thing.
0: Mm-hmm. You're just going to
1: say, well, um, my partner's trans. It can be hurtful when they, you know they're misgendered. I'm sure you didn't mean anything by it. I just wanted to let you know.
2: My partner has done. There's no ladies at this table.
1: And then that's it. So that's fine. Yeah. I would suggest not doing it like that. <laughs> I would suggest doing it more in the model of the way that I just said. Yeah.
2: And uh, that to me is always like kind of like making a little joke like quicker and then I think sometimes then the waiter will be like rethink. I'm like, "Okay, they're going to rethink this now."
1: In the best of situations, that's what would happen. Yeah. But more likely that person is going to feel like the jokes on them and they will do feel defensive. And Mm. as soon as someone becomes defensive, we know neurologically speaking that when someone feels defensive because of a verbal comment, their brain and body literally undergo the exact same process as though they were physically attacked. Weird. Their heart rate will rise. Their muscles will tense. Their their blood will start pumping to prepare them to either fight or flee, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is what's happening when someone begins to feel defensive. And so if our goal is not to master that moment but to over time make it better. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen iteratively, mm-hmm. which means we need to make sure that person doesn't come away with a negative reaction. Mm-hmm. I know it's so easy to deflect with humor. That's what
2: we, especially as my partner and I, both being trans a lot of time, our instinct is
1: to to do correct with uh, a joke. <laughs> I totally get it. And look, it's, I don't need to tell you that it, it's, it's not easy to be a trans I know. person. And I, I don't think it's putting it too harshly to say that it can be dangerous how you re- react in those moments. Yeah. Like, safety is never assured. Right. Um, and I, But I feel as though, A, that's one of the reasons why mastering this system, which makes people not feel threatened and not feel they have to fight or flee, is probably going to be very helpful. Not that you are responsible for someone else's reaction. I know. I'm just saying up the odds a little, Mm -hmm. but also because what we want over time is for it to not be dangerous to be who you are.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I totally support this approach, and I think it is so important for people to step in and say something, but I do have a hard time thinking that even with the STAR method, some people wouldn't get defensive and that it wouldn't cause some problems, you know, especially in a situation where there is a power dynamic where someone has never been challenged that way, where just the mere fact of you calling out their behavior, even in the gentlest way in front of other people, it's going to cause them to feel incredibly uncomfortable. And I can imagine like in a meeting, you know, the boss says something sexist, you step in to defend the person who you know, and then the boss says they don't care, right, Sally, and then Sally suddenly put on this spot having I mean, to be like, "No, yeah, I didn't care. Do you know what I mean, like i I feel like it is a little misleading to maybe say that like everyone will receive this message well, oh, I'm not saying everyone's
1: gonna receive that message well. I'm just saying this ups the chances, the Mm-hmm-hmm. odds." That they mm. will not feel defensive. Again, you right. can't be responsible for someone else's reaction. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have done this with some very powerful people. It can feel awkward. I've gotten super good at it. And I've gotten <laughs> really good at doing it quickly enough that other people at the table might be like, wait, what happened? Right? Mm-hmm. Which is the goal. We want mm-hmm. it to sort of just come in. It wanna be normalized quick. Oops. I know you to, I know you to be a fair person. That's that's why this struck me as odd that you said that. But anyway, let's let's move on. You know, I just wanted to point it out. Moving on.
0: Are you encouraging the person who is marginalized and to, to say something? Or is it more important for, like, the, an ally, you know, another, some maybe someone who's a white man in the room to step in and say these things? So it is
1: actually more important that the white male in the room. And I say that not because we need to hear white men speak more. <laughs> I say that because... When the person who's marginalized and targeted speaks up, they are way more likely to be A, not believed, and B, punished. Mm,
2: mm -hmm. And I
1: know as a woman of color myself that it is irritating when it feels like a white man is speaking for me. Mm -hmm. And, And so for white men, this can be tricky to make sure that they build up trust before they engage here. But also, it's really important that they practice and make sure that they do this in a way which is not speaking for anyone. For example, when you tell someone why something is not right to say, you don't put it on someone else.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: don't say, that's insulting to all the trans people in the room. You mm-hmm. say, that bothers me. I don't like to hear anybody feeding ah. stereotypes like that. Mm-hmm. That bothers me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I know that you are somebody who's concerned about equity and, you know, fairness, and and that's why I wanted to point it out. Anyhow, we can move on. But white men are way more likely to be believed. They're likely to be rewarded when they speak up for marginalized groups. So, yes, we definitely need them to speak up.
2: I had an uh, an instance where I was arguing with a boss and a white guy in the room stepped in and was like, you know, and, and it was interesting, too, because... The way that he did it was he was like stepped in similar to the star method and then said, if you want to know more, I can actually send you some articles. And then the person was like open to being like, oh, yeah, I'll read those. But like I think if I had said the same thing, they would have been like, no, yeah. But I, I enjoyed the way that he handled it because he ended it with being like, surely you want to educate yourself. I'll email you some
1: articles. Absolutely. And that is him restoring. Like that is, I, I don't know how he learned that or that's just natural, but that is him restoring humanity. Giving that person the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure you want to learn more about this so you don't make this mistake again. Let me send you some stuff offline. In the meantime, let's move on. That is exactly how you do it. I thanked him later and he didn't even remember it. <laughs> and that's how they and that's how they live their lives, baby. <laughs> you know, more power to you. God bless, right? I mean right? Okay. But you know, having someone speak up. I remember I was in a meeting with um, it was me and one other female who was a lesbian, and then all of the rest of the people in the room were men, like a big conference table full of men. And the the most senior male in the room started calling me a diva, which anybody who knows me knows I am. Not high maintenance (laughs) at all. Ah! (laughs) And so then every other man in the room started doing that and cracking jokes about me being a hothouse orchid and high maintenance and difficult and blah, 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 blah. And my friend stepped in and said, You know, it's really bothering me that you're saying this about Celeste. Like you are leaning hard into some pretty sexist things. And as the only queer person in the room, that makes me uncomfortable because it makes me wonder what other stereotypes you have lingering in your brains. Can Mm. we please let this go? And she didn't restore them. She was mad, but still, it was a good intervention. <laughs> it was a great
3: intervention. Wow. Yeah.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just
3: between us.
0: And we're back. I think what you're saying about giving them the benefit of the doubt, even if like you don't really think that, Like the importance of (laughs) pretending that you think that, you know, like the importance of like acting as though. Right. With sincerity. It can't. Most of us are not very good at acting. So (laughs) you
1: have to say to yourself, "Okay, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and really say that to yourself rather than Mm. I'm going to pretend like I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Because unless you're George Clooney, that is not going to read well. Like you need to really be like, "Okay, I know you're a sexist pig, but right now in this moment, I'm going to assume you want to get better and you don't realize.
2: Yeah. I also like to take into account where you are, not just power dynamics, but where where you are. There was an instance where for some friends and I were going into a queer event and there was a, a woman who was the bouncer and the person we were with is a trans woman. She has a beard and the bouncer said something like, oh, not a lot of men come here to this person. Right. Right. And I went back later after that interaction. I went back later and I was like, hey, just so you know, like at a queer event, if you're a bouncer any other place, okay. But like at a queer event in particular, I think mentioning gender at the door is not the move. And the person was like, oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for me, it was especially egregious because we were walking into a gay event where you like, I had this idea that like, oh, this is going to be safe. So like, even amongst ourselves, you know, like trying to say something I- I- I
1: amongst your own That's group, the unconscious bias, though, right? I know. Like that just speaks to the fact that it lives in all of us. Yeah, you know, I was I was very transphobic when I was in high school. Like, this is the '80s, right? I had, you know, I didn't know a single trans person. Mm -hmm. I was completely and totally misled. I had no idea what I was talking about, and I was an idiot. And over the course of my education, I realized how dumb I was. I got to meet trans people, blah, 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 blah. And I took the trans implicit association test like a year ago, and I actually have an automatic bias for trans people (laughs) now. Like, it can change. Like, my bias now is to prefer the trans person... (laughs) Over the cisgendered person. So, you know, these these implicit associations, this unconscious bias can change. Yeah. But we have to be aware of it. And it's within your own group, like um, there's a lot
2: of discourse about butch lesbians or transmasculine people recreating misogyny yeah. in the same way. And like it just permeates even if you it just permeates all groups. And that's why it all it all comes together. Like you're just because you're trans doesn't mean you don't have misogynoir, which is uh, uh, misogyny against black women. You know, just because you're, you know, a black woman doesn't mean you can't be transphobic. Like it's all all the
1: transphobic. In the queer community, I mean, in so the gay, much, so much. Oh man, you know. And this is another problem is in when there's this bias where you think that if you're a part of one marginalized group, you understand bias against all marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. That's another bias that people have, and it is not true. You know, in one study, one Asian American woman was at a faculty meeting with facu- large faculty meeting, and was totally upset when the black male in the room said, "Well, speaking as the only person of color in this." room, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, hello. But again, you don't suddenly jump up and yell, you're a racist, right? You have to understand that people don't, it doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. It's just realistic that unconscious bias is unconscious. I know. That's the difficulty.
2: And then there's discourse within that community, which I can't get into because I am white, but there's discourse within that community about who qualifies as a person of color.
0: Yeah. I know. And so let's say like you're starting to do that work. You're starting to recognize your implicit biases. And then like you realize, oh, I said something today that is sexist or I said something today that is a microaggression that's racist. What do you do? Is is it should you go back and try to apologize to that person? Yes,
1: absolutely. I said something I think this was just last year. And then we were on an, in a news meeting and a couple of producers and I had wrangled through some issue, a bunch. It would take in a very long time. It was very complicated, but we got it settled. And in the news meeting, another a separate producer asked me about it. And I was like, it's settled. Don't you worry, you're pretty little ahead. Super sexist. <laughs> <laughs> Super sexist, right? I Obviously, I didn't mean it that way. I was supposed to be kind of a joke of like... Yeah. But... A, I knew immediately that it came off as sexist because there was silence (laughs) for
2: like 20 seconds,
1: and I was like, oh, crap. And so then I had to go back, but because I had said the sexist thing in public, I needed to apologize in public. So the next time that we had a news meeting, I said, hey, I said this thing, I idiotically meant it as a joke, it's no excuse, it was sexist, and I'm so sorry. Yeah. So, yes, you absolutely should apologize. It also makes people more willing to come and let you know when you've said the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And you want that. You want people to feel empowered to come and tell you when you said the wrong thing so that you don't say it again.
0: Mm -hmm. No, like there's a, a lot of talk like with therapists, you know, because therapists will sometimes rupture the bond between, you know, unintentionally between them and their client. And so it's like really important and helpful for the client to feel like they can say to the therapist, hey, what you said upset me or this hurt me or this was a bias or this, and then having that safe relationship where they know that the therapist will receive that well instead of like getting defensive.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Exactly.
2: Even the opposite way, my therapist will constantly, I'll like say something and my therapist will unpack with me why that is cis sexist or why that is you know like m- hey you're kind of you're saying something that i think you should unpack why you feel that way and it took a, it's taken time for me to be like oh and, and 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 understand the need to do that you know because i think sometimes people think therapists could and correct me if i'm wrong alison that therapists should just be like anything you say short of i'm going to murder my whole family is fine you know <laughs>
0: There's there's a lot of debate within the community about that. There, you know, some people think that the therapist's role is to not push back on on things like that and some people view therapists as agents of of social justice and that their mm-hmm. job is to try to change people's beliefs to be more equitable and and to away from all of the isms. Mm-hmm. But not every not all therapists think that way and so it is this big thing of debate within the community. I bet. I lean towards your social justice agent and you should push back. (laughs) Yeah, because
1: for me, it's like it it depends on how much do you think this unconscious bias is a dysfunction, is a mental and emotional dysfunction. I -hmm. tend to think that the unconscious bias is very much a sign of dysfunction. And therefore, as a therapist, you're required to help solve that dysfunction. And also Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of not making it feel shameful for someone to admit bias Mm -hmm. because shame is not. Great. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there's also tricky stuff culturally, right? Yeah. Some cultures are just patriarchal, and that's the way that they're set up. And so as a therapist, you're not supposed to, like, impose your culture on your client.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's this yeah. gray area that's really uncomfortable.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember in high school reading a book about a particular culture, and there was, like, violence in their coming-of-age Rituals? And I remember even in high school, not to like toot my own horn, but even in high school, like there was a lot of discourse in my English class about like, oh, well, you know, that's not okay, And people should have stepped in. I remember even at the time being like the only person who was like, I don't know about this, you guys. (laughs) But then at the time, I was like, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But now it's like part of the popular discourse, I think, for people to say, actually, that's colonization. That's, you know, we should work on our biases around cultures that aren't our own and um, imposing our own sort of white Western views on these other cultures.
1: And there's also the question of all the violence that we tolerate as normal, like a football game. Um, yeah. That it kind of, it's a little bit hypocritical for us to tell us that someone else's ritual is violent when we watch violence every single day and don't say a word about it.
0: That's true. I'm wondering, like, what are some really common forms of sexism that we might not even recognize as sexism?
1: Common forms of sexism. I mean, we we mentioned one, which is holding the door. There's also this idea that women are naturally more sensitive and nurturing and kind and compassionate. This comes up a lot, actually, with women saying things like, you know, if we had female leaders, they would be more compassionate. hate it. It, they're more empathetic, et cetera, et cetera. That's just not supported by science. It may be true, but it's it's nurture, right? Like if you take very, very young boys, they are, in fact, in some ways, more sensitive than very young girls, and it's only when they begin to encounter gender norms that those two stereotypes start to become real. I'm not saying it's not true. In many cases, women do tend to be more empathetic, but that's mostly a function of society expecting women to be nurturing and men to be more standoffish and aggressive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the most common ones. Um, Another one is this idea that women can't advocate for themselves. And so when we want to like fix the gender wage gap or whatever then we need to train women to fix themselves. We need to train women how to be more aggressive. Essentially teach teaching them how to act like a man. We need to train them to ask for the money that they want. We need to train them to stop saying I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a coping mechanism that women have come up with because a, an aggressive woman in the office is punished and shunned mm-hmm. and seen as unlikable and an unlikable woman does not get promoted, she doesn't get raises. Mm-hmm say what you will about whether that's right or wrong. It's wrong, but that's the truth. It's a double-edged sword because if you're too
2: deferential and feminine, they won't promote you. But if you're too yep. aggressive, they won't promote
1: you. They're so. not gonna promote you. <laughs> There's the, we are all sexist. We live and work in sexist society. And so the <gasps> odds are against you either way. Yeah. That's the thing. This is not about fixing women. This is about fixing the system. Hold the door for everybody. Exactly. Hold the door for everyone.
2: I think men are so scared of being seen as gay that they're like, if I hold the door for this man, he's going to think I'm gay. I know, but that's the thing, right? I know. If you compliment a female coworker, you're like, whatever. But if you
1: say to like a guy, like looking sharp, he might think you're gay. Ooh, that's another sexist crap that I hate is when any mention of uh, lesbians or any time like you, if you rub your female colleagues back because she her back is aching or whatever, not uninvited, but with consent, um, someone will say, oh, that's getting me all hot. Some man will say that. Oh, my God. Like that whole thing of that, that men constantly expressing how much they want to watch lesbian sex. That is I can't. I can't with that crap.
0: Yeah. And so how do we make these structural changes? Because that's the hard that's the hard part. You know, like we can talk to individuals to like combat their implicit biases. But like, how do we make it so it's widespread?
1: So my whole approach, you know, there's many, many different kinds of ways to, to combat this. I don't generally deal in the big, expansive voting law act. Right, I'm not. I don't have that kind of power and influence, but I do know that these micro interventions are incredibly powerful long term. The reason being that the only thing that will bring about change is for someone else to rethink their actions. Mm. Exterior motivation is almost ineffective. Like it's, it's, it almost doesn't register in terms of having a real impact internal motivation when someone else thinks oh i wonder if i screwed that up or said that wrong it's just like me with with when everyone went silent and that was i was internally motivated i was like uh oh i said the wrong thing internal motivation is incredibly strong and you don't get internal motivation by giving speeches and, sh- and calling people awful and putting funny memes on Twitter. You get internal motivation when someone feels they've had an empathic connection with someone, and that sparks new thoughts mm-hmm. in their b- brain. Mm-hmm then they themselves will motivate change. And over time, it's like when I was a kid, there was some shampoo commercial where they were like, I use the shampoo and then I told my friend and then she told her friend and she, and on the TV, it's like all the pictures expanding and multiplying, that's what we need, is we need everyone to have these micro interventions which then amplify and multiply and propagate until it then becomes systemic. That's cool. You know, the, the changing attitudes over the gay and lesbian community it is a it can teach us so much because the the approval of gay and lesbian couples and gay and lesbian adoption changed so rapidly. Now I am not in the gay community. So I'm sure that if that you sucks were for you. <laughs> 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 that didn't feel that fast. But I'm talking about over the history, like if you're looking broadly through decades yeah. and generations, that was a very, for for human society, that was a very rapid change. And we can learn a lot from that. How, how and why did opinions change that quickly? It's, again, a double-edged sword.
2: I think it's a, a Western thing. I think it was like homosexuality was started out being a bit more accepted, then got unaccepted, then came back. Like, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword because it's, the visibility of being seen as especially as trans people, I think is positive. But also sometimes it's like, I wish that there wasn't that much disability because then we were left alone.
1: I'm not talking about the trans community. That opinion hasn't changed that quickly. I'm taking only lesbian community. But then there's the the idea that the approval
2: and acceptance of straight society. Sometimes I'm like, I don't want your approval. I just want you to respect it. I don't want I don't need you to think to understand or to think like, oh, this is right or wrong. I just need you to be like, even if I don't get it, even if you're not mimicking straight society, you deserve the same rights. So it's hard. You know, I'm I think I'm a bit of a. Less palatable queer than perhaps other people. That's like I'm not the person. Queer. Yeah, like I'm not the person that you're gonna like get that like is gonna Neil appeal Patrick to Harris? the Senate. You know, I'm not queer. Neil Patrick Harris. No, I
1: don't do magic. It's um not a monolith. You know, of course it's not a monolith. But the the, the what we're, what I'm talking about is opinion changing as a society yeah.
3: and we're yeah. talking
1: about the number of people who said that being gay was a choice in 1950 versus the number who say it now the number who say that uh gays uh should be allowed to get married versus in 1950 versus now that is a radical change mm-hmm whether that means they approve of gays is a completely different question. We're talking about whether or not they just want to afford them basic civil rights and believe they have a right to exist. That was a massive, and speaking in generational terms, very quick change. And and again, it's something that psychologists and, and, and psychiatrists are, are studying and they should study it because it yeah. might give us clues on how we, we can motivate people and, and change their minds
0: if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, this is awesome. I definitely want to be part of the change. I want to have these micro interventions, but it feels still like kind of scary or overwhelming. How can you prepare for them? Like, does it help to sort of script them out? So you sort of have them on hand and like, and practice them on your own so that in the moment you feel more prepared to do them.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I write that in the, in the ebook is, is a, this can be very scary. So absolutely practice just like you, we did a few minutes ago, practice with your friends. It does mean that you have to come up with sexist things to say, but it also means people are going to get shut down over and over and over again, which can be very satisfying. Um, You have to practice so that you're ready in the moment and you don't hesitate. But also, this is breaking it down into really, really tiny parts. And if we think of this just in terms of 30 seconds at a time, it makes it easier for people to handle rather than saying, okay, here's how you change the patriarchy, (laughs) right? That's a big, big thing. But can you spend 30 seconds telling someone, hey, I don't like that, what you just said for this reason, but I understand you're not, you're still a good person. Can you do that? Yeah, absolutely.
0: What if in the moment you, you know, maybe you don't have the guts to do it or you kind of get frozen and you don't say it? Like, is it then worth saying something later? Is it just sort of, again, coming back to that self-compassion of, okay, next time I'm I'm going to try? Like, how do you approach that if you sort of miss the moment?
1: I think it's worth it saying it later, as long as you don't end up using that as your strategy uh, going forward and say, well, it's okay for me to always say it later. Um, you know, one thing that people don't spend a lot of time, but we have good research on is the psychological toll that it takes on people when they do not speak up about benevolent sexism or benevolent Mm. racism. It has a real deleterious effect on your well-being. So although we often think in the moment about the risks of speaking up, we rarely include that calculation of the risks of not speaking up. Mm. It will impact you over time. Um, And it's it's a significant enough impact that we can trace it. (laughs) So yes, it is worth it speaking up whenever you speak up, But really try to get into the habit of just saying that really quickly in the moment. And you know what? Find, if you're afraid, find an ally in advance. Mm. You know, oftentimes the people who make say these microaggressions say them often. They don't just every once, you know, out of the blue moon say Mm -hmm. them. So say, hey, listen, it's bothering me. I'm going to speak up next time. You know, can you have my back? That can help you.
0: Right. Sort of forming little teams (laughs) in your community. Wow, this has been so helpful and wonderful. And and now I have to ask you to play a silly game show.
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, So hypotheticals is a game where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay. And I just get to decide whose answer I like better. Okay. Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? (laughs) It is America's favorite game show. Yeah, I've decided. (laughs) Okay, your partner of seven months loves pranks and goofs. On April 1st, they happily tell you that they made out with your best friend and then shout, April fools, you are relieved it was just a prank until it is revealed that they actually did make out with your best friend and just have a fundamental misunderstanding of April Fool's. Would you stay with this cheater? No. No. (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) One, I hate pranks. I hate pranks. There's no need for it. I hate them. But you know what it is? I'm just remembering now. I hate pranks, but I love messing with people. What's that about? Well, that's the same
3: thing. It is the same
1: thing. But also, here's the thing. That person is stupid. And I don't don't enjoy dating someone who's really fundamentally dumb. Like, that's, that's not smart. That's a dumb, dumb person. So, no. Prank or not, they're just too dumb for me.
0: Wow. See, I will push back, and I think that that's actually a little ableist. And I don't know if you meant it that way, but that's the use of the word dumb and stupid is something that we've actually had pushback on the show about using, and people find it hurtful. I, which I totally
1: understand. I'm not sure how else you explain someone who Abcuse. has- ha, naive. Yeah, ah, naive doesn't quite get it. This is someone who is willfully ignorant of some basic knowledge about human beings. Let's put it that way. Yeah,
2: they didn't. They, they've they never encountered. Have they ever
1: encountered
2: April Fool's before?
1: Or, or they're willfully ignorant. They either don't know or they don't care about the effect that's going to have on the person they're dating. That's true. That's not nice. They're not nice. Yeah. Both of those options are bad. Either don't know,
0: don't care. Those are both deal breakers.
2: Don't know, don't care is not nice.
0: I yeah. think I agree. All right, so we're not staying with them, even though they're... No. Did I mention they're very wealthy? God damn it, Allison! Why do you always do this to me? <laughs> I don't care, but I'm
1: in my but... 50s and financially secure, so... <laughs> I'm still gonna go.
0: You will, Gabby? I'm gonna go, yeah. Do you think you'll steal some stuff first? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 12, hates to read, which is upsetting to you because you love it. In order to get them to do it, you start to write them long handwritten letters that are supposedly from the government since they have been especially selected to be part of an elite group of teenagers who will one day be called to duty. The letters are filled with U.S. history and science facts, and they gobble them up in preparation for their inevitable mission. After doing this for three years, your child has developed a love of reading, but is devastated to learn the special program has been cut due to budget concerns, (laughs) and they will never get to go on a mission. Are you a terrible parent? No, I think you're a good parent. (laughs) No, you're a
2: terrible,
1: terrible parent. No, you're
2: good. You're involved. No, you're terrible. Allison, I thought you were going to say that you admit that you made it up, but no, you just continue to say Continued that it with was a lie. That yeah. it was budget cuts, which is very believable, I think. So believable. I think you're a great parent. <laughs> no, you're a terrible
1: parent. You know how many how much of our literature is based on the damage done when someone finds out their parent lied to them? So many novels, so many oh, wow. novels. Like that yeah. damage is It's lasting. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm perfectly fine. (laughs) And not only that, but there are actually healthy ways to get your kid involved in reading. Number one, you may just not be presenting them with the kind of stuff they want to read. Have you tried a graphic novel? Have you tried just rewarding them? I mean, I would use the reward system all the time with my kid. Like, you can use healthy ways rather than just blatantly lying and then continuing the lie to save yourself that you're not continuing the lie for the kids benefit i think while i'm writing it i'm also learning and i (laughs) like that oh no that is just justification for horrible behavior no don't take the easy way out is it damaging if they never find out that you were lying to them right i'm a buddhist we don't (laughs) lie fair (laughs) enough that's, that's That's one of the basic
0: tenets. Intellectual honesty is important to me. So, All right. So (laughs) I I guess I won't put this in my parenting book. (laughs) Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You start a new job and your coworker remarks on an adorable photo you have of your dog on your desk. You start gushing over your dog and they start gushing over theirs as well. You become close friends, originally due to your common interests, but over the years, it blossoms into a full-blown friendship filled with lots of dog talk. Two years into knowing each other, you finally go over to their house, and there is no dog in sight. Instead, (sighs) they have seven cats. (gasps) When you confront them about this, they say, people like me better when I pretend to have a dog. Would you forgive this liar? Yes.
3: Why? Interesting.
1: Yeah, I absolutely forget would forgive them. Part of it is based on the damage, like it's no da- they're correct. People probably do like them better if they have a dog, but they're talking about their pet. I mean, when they were t- speaking about the dog and all those loving terms, they were probably thinking of their cat. They're talking about a pet. Like it doesn't hurt me any. I'd be like, "You're weird," and I would say that to them. I would be like, "That's an odd choice to make." I would say seven cats is a lot, but
2: remember the we know a person who has six cats. <laughs> So uh, I know somebody who has seven children. Is that odd? Uh, that's true. Uh, I, and they're all named after cats. This is my child, Deuteronomy. This is my
1: child, <laughs> Mr. Mistoffelees. That would be a step even further toward uncommon. Uh, but uh. I would forgive them. I would probably ask if they were lying about anything else. Yeah, Mm, that's smart. And I would say, like, look, it bothers me that you would have lied this whole time. It shows a lack of trust in me. So tell me now, because the next one, I'm going to find it hard to forgive. Could they get
0: a dog? (laughs) No, they actually they hate dogs. I hate that. Not friends. Not friends. Oh, if
1: they hate dogs. Oh, that takes it to another. No, I can't. I can't then. Then I can't forgive it. Oh, Interesting. The
2: reason I am not dating my friend Drew is because she did not have a big enough reaction to beans when she met him and that we just became friends because I was like, this date is over. So, (laughs) that, and then I didn't tell, she didn't know that. And Mal said it, my partner. She, Drew didn't know why it didn't work out. And we just like became best friends and whatever. And then like one day, a year later, Mal was like, well, you didn't like beans enough. So Gabby didn't want to date you. And Drew was like, is that really why? And I was like, Mel! <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that is why. So, not friends.
1: Yeah, I same. If it turns out that the reason they don't have a dog is cuz they hate dogs. I mean, look, when I was dating still, there were three I was like there's three factors that if a guy has at least two of them, it's a deal breaker. And they were they hate dogs, they hate Stevie Wonder, <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> and you know, they don't like to walk. Like one of those things, okay? But two of them, they're probably a serial killer. Like there's Who hates Stevie Wonder? This is the point, right? Like, okay, maybe you don't like his 1980s, you know, synth pop, but every version of Stevie Wonder you don't like? How is that possible? How is it
2: possible? That's probably a great litmus test, actually. Yeah. (laughs) So
0: yeah, if you hate dogs, suspicious. This person's lost a friend. Yes.
2: Yeah. Unless you have a very good reason to hate dogs, like you're allergic or you're attacked. But if you just like, you don't Fine, have a reason, yeah. you just don't like dogs, bye. Exactly. They that- think
0: they're funny looking.
1: Out of here. No. Nope.
2: Get
0: out of nope. here. No, nope. no, nope.
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. Dogs are objectively adorable, even when they're ugly.
0: Correct. Agreed. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and read all of your amazing work?
1: So the easiest thing is I have a website, com, And the only social media I'm really active on is Twitter, which is just at Celeste Headley. So those are the best places to find me.
0: Amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This was so wonderful. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.
3: Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about student loans.
0: Just between us. It's time for topics. X, 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 baby.
3: Baby. Baby. Wow,
2: you went high with it this time. It was a circle.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hello, Melissa. Thank you for joining us for today's topic. Student loans. What do you guys think when I say that? Cringe. Hate it.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I, every day I go, I'm not going to go on a rant in this show. And every day I do. So it's who you are. I just, I, I just, just be you. That's fine. Thank you. I appreciate you so much, Melissa. Student loans are obviously a big problem in that one, they affect a type of person that is largely upper middle class. When we think of the biggest problem facing millennials or Gen Z, we're thinking of a certain group of people who even, want to go to college or aspire to go to college or can go to college to the existence of them and the high tuition at these schools is preventing class mobility. And it's on purpose. It's certain people who, even if they come from a background where they don't have the money for this and they want to bet, you know, quote, unquote, better themselves. And by that, I mean, be able to uh, apply to more high paying jobs, achieve more in their field. They are kept from that by these loans and this high tuition. It is actually a, a class problem in that it is keeping people from economic mobility. So I think that there's a two part problem. One is that a lot of us were sold this idea that having these educations would lead to jobs that would then be able to pay off student loans. And two, it is keeping people uh, excluded from these colleges where they may be able to achieve more than, let's say, where they come from or what their parents have. They're to the children of immigrants. They come from a low-income background. And then I would even say three, hopefully a lot of us are learning that because these Ivy League or these very expensive schools are not guarantees of anything Jobs and people, uh, looking to, to get an education in that way will extend the, their options to community colleges, to state schools, to places where the education may be just as good, but the prestige of the name maybe doesn't mean as much as it once did in the past. But it is a complete class and economic mobility problem. And it's also classist to, to make jokes about community college or to, you know, keep people out of certain positions because they went to, you know, Illinois
0: State or whatever. That's my
2: that's my that's my rant.
0: No, I think you make great points, and I and I think you know there was this real momentum for there to be student loan forgiveness on a federal level that's not happening, and so it's really frustrating to me. And it seems to be the only reason that people don't want it to happen is because they're like, well, I paid my loans off, so everyone mm-hmm. else should too.
3: Yep. There's also the people that most of the people i say in Congress were going to school when it costs like $10 to go to school. Right. And they don't understand or they the information's there and they don't care to sit down and understand how much different it is and how much life in general is a scam. <laughs> it's all mm-hmm. a scam. And the cost of tuition is ridiculous at most levels. And why like why is it that much i'll tell you why okay the colleges are
2: looking to attract people beyond academically so a lot of these schools will up tuition to put in things like lazy rivers which is a literal thing or put in you know brand new gyms or put in things that are are very targeted to the places where money comes from. And student athletes are not paid, by the way. And then, you know, tons of money will be spent on stuff for people who want to watch NCAA sports.
3: But isn't that usually a different, like there's a booster money that comes in for athletics, but then the...
2: Yes, but it affects the students in that I had a friend who was attending Yale on a basketball scholarship was injured. And Yale was like, now you must pay us. And then they were not getting paid for the time and bodily effort that that was spent making money for the school Mm -hmm. on sales of tickets and all that kind of thing. So instead of putting in a new library, instead of updating computers, instead of paying for professors that to not just be adjunct, but to have job security and to be of a caliber that would allow the classes to be more useful. Schools are putting in stuff to attract people by being fun. And that's why they're raising tuition to put in things that don't actually affect academics, because the people that are applying to these schools are doing so because it's a party school, doing so because they have a great sports team. And the schools encourage that rather than putting forth any money into the academic aspect of the school. And then because they're drowning, they need to have higher tuition. Hmm. That's my opinion.
0: Do you think that the government could just forgive all current student loans right now and it wouldn't matter at all
3: to the government? They absolutely could. We haven't paid student loans since bef- the pandemic hit. And mm-hmm. what has it affected? Right.
2: They absolutely <laughs> could. <laughs>
3: like nothing. Nothing.
2: The problem is is that there has become a student loan industrial complex. So there is there are tons of companies that rely on student loans. There are tons of lobbies and economic factors that go into not having people not have student loans. I think it would drastically affect the economy. I think it would drastically affect buying power and spending power for groups that don't have buying power and spending power. I think it would immediately allow for people to afford homes when they might not be able to. I think it would immediately allow for people to have children where they might be deferring that. You know, I think there's a lot of factors that it would affect. And the government is not prepared to handle all of those factors, even though a lot of them will be positive. And the, the idea, right, is that is that if people have their student loans forgiven let's say then they don't need to be at this particular job that they don't like because they don't have to pay their loans but then they might not have health care so then the government should then provide universal health care like it all kind of goes in this way you could weigh wa- you know raise the minimum wage it could all go in this way and the government thinks that they need the money and what are they delegating that money to largely the military
3: Yeah, the military. Also, aren't we taxing people at a fair rate? Right. Billionaires particularly. Correct. Especially like the ones that want to buy Twitter that could pay for all this. exactly. And
2: when people default on their student loans or when people can't make their student loan payments, it affects their credit. You can take money out of their paycheck. Then that keeps them again from buying homes, from being able to, you know, have, I don't know, fair interest rates. Like it's a complete cycle that is because it's the status quo. And when you see people defending the status quo, I think it's largely out of fear. So, yes, the government could forgive student loans in two seconds. I also think sometimes that the focus on student loans as the largest issue affecting people our age is misguided in the sense that probably universal health care and universal basic income and reparations might, might be too scary for people, but those would also perhaps have a similar benefit
0: <laughs> i also think just this mentality of like why should we help people when nobody helped me is like so detrimental and so selfish and so f-
3: nearsighted i can't those people that are saying that paid ten dollars to go to school right mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> although my mom went to law school and she paid off her loans after a very long time
3: i think once the the next level degrees but i mean like the bachelor yeah. degrees and stuff like that. They cost nothing. They used Absolutely. to not.
2: Leave. And there was a big marketing campaign telling people that they should not go to school in their hometown. They should not go to the local college. They should not. You have to go. Okay, here you want to hear something fucked? At my school, at my, at my high school, there was a big poster and everyone's name was on it and you would you would pin... What colleges you had gotten into on the poster public for everyone to see And I remember thinking, if I only have state schools on that poster, I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off a cliff like I remember feeling like I needed everyone to see that I was getting into bigger schools and so because of that, I got into Emerson, which I think was good for me and I needed to go to Boston to realize I would you know my gay life and blah 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 I get it. I needed to go to a city, but I ended up having student loans that I just paid off like three years ago by the, by the skin of my teeth, teeth and through sheer luck and privilege of working in this industry. And I got in. I had Bright Futures, which is a program in Florida where if you get a certain GPA, you can go to University of Florida essentially for free. And I had Bright Futures and I got into the University of Florida and I thought it wasn't prestigious enough and I didn't go what? That was a lie. We bought a lie.
0: Yeah. (sighs) What do we rate this episode?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, And I, and let me just say, I even had a, a full half tuition academic scholarship shipped to Emerson and I still was buried in loans. Anyway, I rate this episode 11 out of 10, Gabby
0: having an opinion on everything. I will rate it 14 out of 7 difficult conversations.
3: I'll rate it 30 out of 22. Communication is a scam. They're shutting us all down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Don't bring that up. Don't throw that. I had forgotten about that. Now I'm very upset again. <laughs> I
3: could tell. That's why I threw in the last part. I could. T- you're like, what is she talking about?
0: Because <laughs> I blocked it from my mind. <laughs> well thank you to celeste headley for being our guest just between us is a forever dog production hosted by me allison raskin
2: and me gabby dunn produced by melissa big d monts edited by coco lorenz executive produced by brett bohm joe cilio alex ramsey and tracy soren brendan burns composed our killer theme music to listen to this podcast ad free sign up for forever dog plus at forever
0: slash plus And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Forever Dog Team or YouTube.com slash Just Between Us Show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest
2: Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, at She Is Not Melissa, and Allison's book, Overthinking About You, which is out now and you should get it. Bye!
1: Forever Dog!